Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Piki mai, kake mai, and welcome to Our Changing World from RNZ National. What is it that propels our fears when confronted with the notion of living next door to a convicted sex offender? To find out more, Sonia Sly heads to the University of Auckland to talk with psychologist Gwenda Willis. Former National MP and ex-Auckland councillor Arthur Anai has been using unsupervised child sex offenders as cheap labour. 72-year-old Iosua Chan Key was today sentenced to preventive detention with a the minimum The man had been jailed in the early 2000s for 22 crimes against children. A 56-year-old man standing trial for a series of rapes and violence against women spanning more than three decades. As a child, I knew that there were men who liked to prey on young girls... With all those Stranger Danger films and I'd watch the news on TV, it horrified me. And as a teenager, I would literally run through shadowy streets at night when I went out in the hopes that no one would be following me. Now as a grown woman, the fear or threat of being attacked is one of my worst nightmares. Just do as I say. (laughs) Keep your mouth shut. just being paranoid? Where do my fears really come from? And if a convicted sex offender was released back into the community, are any of us in any real danger? I'm Sonia Sly, and in this episode of Our Changing World, I investigate the reality for high-risk sex offenders upon release, their triggers for sexual violence, and whether rehabilitation is truly possible in an age where the impact of the media compounds our fears and threatens our security. I'm a clinical psychologist here at the University of Auckland and a senior lecturer attached to the clinical psychology training programme. This is Dr Gwenda Willis. And in terms of my area, I like to summarise it as preventing sexual abuse or preventing sexual violence because that's really what motivates me to do what I do. Gwenda's focus has been working with sexual offenders and looking at how best to reduce the likelihood of reoffending. She also works with communities and looks at policies around this issue. It's a hard task, it's controversial. At the same time, I think it's a really important one and, you know, no-one wants these people repeating what they've done. I certainly don't, and that's really what motivated me to to get into this is understanding why do some people do these horrible things. Gwenda started out her career working at Kia Marama. It's a prison-based treatment programme for men who have sexually offended against children. But during her time there, she saw some areas that weren't being addressed. I really gravitated towards thinking, "How how can we do an even better job? I was just left with so many questions um, that led to me eventually trying to find a way of doing both research and clinical work. So what were the questions that came up for you then? What I was finding back then is that people were going through this really intensive treatment programme and they were then getting released into these environments that didn't necessarily support treatment generalisation or didn't necessarily help them maintain anything that they learnt in the programme. So, for example, people have been released into really hostile 
community environments. So there was one case where there was a pamphlet drop around Christchurch um, saying, high-risk sex offender being released into your neighbourhood, what are you going to do to um, stop him from coming or something like that? And these people were trying to warn um, warn concerned parents and, and other community members and the um, house where this person was due to be released into, community members started throwing rocks at it and um, the person hadn't even been released yet and obviously the person didn't get released into that house. So, And I was just sort of thinking, you know, if these people don't have somewhere to live and if they don't have a job to go to, if they don't have anything to do with their lives, then how can we really expect them to change? How can we expect them to be like a contributing member of society? Um, but are they a risk? Well, some, some of them are a risk, but the majority of people that are convicted of a sex offence are have convicted of their first offence and they don't re-offend. Um, but if they're treated like monsters and if they're treated like um, predators and like they're definitely going to offend, then it's not helpful for them and it's not helpful for our goals in terms of helping them reintegrate and, and live a life that's not going to harm other people. So how threatened do we really feel? I decided to head out into the inner city on a busy Friday lunchtime in Wellington to chat to some people about the thought of living next to a convicted sex offender. I like it, put it that way. I wouldn't, I wouldn't like it, no. But then again, you always say not at my place. You know what I mean? How would you feel? I'd myself. Because <laughs> I'd be scared that he'd do it again. Courts, whoever, put people in situations and they don't tell people what they used to do. So we'd never know anyhow. And, I mean, would there be a difference if the person was a convicted paedophile? They don't have children. So it wouldn't worry you? No. We've got two young children. I'd be pretty cautious about the fact that having them within the vicinity of where you're living. And you'd want to understand, I guess, the background of what's actually happened to them, what sort of rehabilitation, what sort of controls are in place for them. I don't know if it would necessarily make me more comfortable. And how old are your kids? Eight and eleven. What would you tell them? I mean, there's always going to be a risk to certain people and to particularly strangers, you don't really know what's going to happen. So it's just a matter of them being informed and making sure that they're safe. It's not a matter of keeping track of them all the time, but I would be more concerned, but I think it's got to happen somewhere. I would assume that if the person was still a risk, that they would probably be monitored in some way. I'm not really going to change my life for the person who lives next door to me. (laughs) (laughs) And none of us should have to, should we? We shouldn't have to. I personally feel conflicted as a mother of a young child, and the thought makes me very uneasy. But we can't help but think about our own security. I do wonder, though, what some of the myths are around sexual offenders and what's been illuminated in Gwenda's research. That's been another area of interest for me. So I can understand that emotion, and I think what it's really showing is that there's a real lack of information out there. People aren't always informed about what we need to be doing to prevent sexual offending and prevent sexual reoffending. I've seen in my research that people really overestimate recidivism rates. People are really not comfortable with having someone with a sex offence conviction live near them or be a part of their, I mean, their social do, groups. Like and if, if you bought a house you know, in a nice neighbourhood or wherever, mm. how would you feel if a sex offender was you know, shifted in right next door to you and you were, yeah. had a baby on the way? The reality is they do already. The reality is that most of these people don't actually get caught. Most of these people don't go uh, uh, 
these offences aren't reported to the police. Of those that are, um, even fewer go to court. Um, and of those cases that go to court, only a select few result in a conviction. The focus of a lot of um, forensic psychology is on that proportion of people right down the bottom of that that pyramid, um, whereas there's so many people that are committing acts of sexual violence that, that don't go through the system. Now, I would feel much more comfortable knowing that someone had been through some kind of treatment program, knowing, knowing that someone was accountable to, say, their probation officer and their friends and family, um, that they yeah, they had owned up to what they did and that they were motivated to go straight, for lack of a better word, to, um, to live a non-offending life. Um, I would feel more comfortable with that than not knowing the people who are around me. And I guess as well, I'd feel more comfortable with that than being next to someone I knew who had a history of drunk driving because we know that they're much more likely to re-offend than someone who has a conviction for these type of offences. So it's definitely taken me time in the course of my career to be able to put the emotion to one side, if you like, and really start to think about it in a rational kind of a way. And, and that's difficult. When those types of questions are posed to me, I do have to, to stop and think and, and remember how I felt when I first got into this kind of work. Um, An interesting yeah, so discovery is that those who have a higher education are less likely to be dismissive and more understanding of people with these kinds of convictions. They're also more likely to be... Less hostile, more aware of where the risks are and recidivism rates and that kind of thing than people that don't have the same level of education. We've also seen that media reporting can have an influence on people's attitudes. It was in the postnatal ward at Auckland Hospital where the Crown says the accused raped his then partner soon after she gave birth to their child. So he'd throw them out of the window. A law change last year saw the unit established to house extreme high-risk sexual or violent offenders who have already... Police have spent nearly two days on the hunt for a high-risk child sex offender. And everybody is vigilant around their children, but you can't always be, be there. You exploited her naivety and cynically groomed her for your selfish needs. You robbed her of her <coughs> innocence. Admittedly, it's difficult to escape the horror stories in the media with the use of highly emotive language, which sets everyone on high alert. By blowing it up and sensationalising it, we don't think rationally. We tend to focus on horror cases, like things that don't happen all that often, and then come up with like legislation, for example, this is kind of what's happened in the United States, and apply that to everyone that's got a sex offence conviction. But then that's not productive because it creates more problems for everyone. A lot of that legislation that's, that's come out in the United States just isn't working. It's not effective. If someone's about to be released into the population and they are feeling that hostility is going to increase the levels of anxiety and then trigger behaviour? I mean, is that how it works, would you say? Could, yeah, and just blocking access to live a productive pro-social life. Like, if we're not letting these people get jobs, if we're not letting these people join social groups and get that sense of belonging and do pro-social things, then what do we expect them to do? Like, do we just expect them to sit inside and watch TV all day and just kind of watch the clock tick? For these people to desist from offending, if you like, or cease sexual offending, um, we really need to be giving them an opportunity to do so. We want to not only reduce the risk of reoffending, make reoffending less likely, but also make it less desirable. We want them to have something to live for. But the question is, does someone who has committed a repeat offence, perhaps, against someone as vulnerable as a child, deserve a second chance to live a normal life? Everyone got a second chance. Maybe those persons 
yeah, lived a rape as well. So they need as well to, to live with the society, to have a job. Oh, I think they should be, have the ability to get back into an employment, but when it comes to community matters, I think it's a very different concept when it's something that's happened over a number of years. You know, just because they haven't been convicted of it doesn't necessarily mean they weren't guilty of it. So. I think I'd feel a bit uncomfortable, but I mean, I also kind of believe everyone can change, I guess, and you should give them a second chance. Like, if they decided it was safe for him to be placed there, then I think I'd be all right with it. I mean, I'd still feel not quite secure about it, but... A focus of a project I'll be starting next year is looking at this idea of desistance. So we know that there are so many people out there um, that have a history of sexual offending, um, that are now living in the community, have been for some time, were assessed as being at a high risk of reoffending, but haven't actually reoffended. We know that about 50% um, of people who are assessed as high risk don't reoffend, but we don't actually know much about those people. So I'm really keen to there are two sides to every story. And what's clear from Gwenda's research is that those who have committed sexual offences are more likely than not to have had some form of traumatic or adverse experience before the age of 18. A lot of the people I was working with had really disruptive childhoods, whether or not that was sexual abuse, physical abuse, um, having an absent parent, um, drug and alcohol abuse in the family, mental health problems in the family, like a whole sort of range of things were going on. I looked at those things and I sort of thought, you know, it's not really surprising that this person has um, turned out the way they have in terms of their kind of psychological functioning, given this kind of background. We need to at least acknowledge where they've come from and validate some of that and help them understand how they've developed the problems that, that, that they have and that these treatment programs focus on if we're really going to engage them in, in the therapy process. And there's been a lot of research done in, in this field um, looking especially at the prevalence of sexual abuse, childhood sexual abuse in people who have sexually offended. Typically that research has found that maybe around 30% of people um, who have sexually offended have had their own experiences of sexual abuse. And that's smaller um, than I would have expected. It is small and it was smaller than what I would have expected as well. Um, but then I, I thought and as I was reflecting earlier that sexual abuse is one of many um, disruptive experiences that can happen in childhood and certainly with the, the men that I was working with I was seeing so much dysfunction and some of them had been sexually abused, some of them not, but most of them had experienced some kind of trauma um, to to present the way that they were presenting. Um, so what I was interested in is looking not just at sexual abuse but at the sort of realm of experiences that they might have been exposed to as, as a young person. And there's been some research um, in North America called the, the ACE study or the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study initiated by a couple of medical doctors. They used a general population sample to investigate the prevalence of 10 different um, early adverse experiences. So it covers all different types of abuse, um, including physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, as well as um, emotional and physical neglect, um, as well as parental separation or divorce, including um, whether or not you had a, a parent that might have had a mental health problem or a substance abuse problem, whether or not a household member went to prison, all that kind of thing. The so ACE score is the sum of these adverse experiences in the first 18 years of life. And Gwenda used the ACE study to draw comparisons in New Zealand. While not all people who have experienced sexual abuse will go on to abuse, it's those who have support around them that are more likely to overcome their adversities. What the North American research found um, just in the general population, um, so when it comes to, say, sexual abuse, about 20% or 21% um, of people in this United States sample around 17,000, quite a big sample, had experienced sexual abuse, 10% emotional abuse, 28% physical abuse. About 36% of this 
large sample in the United States had an ACE score of, of zero, so hadn't experienced any of those early adverse experiences. About 26% had, had experienced one, um, about 16% two, 9.5% three, and 12.5%, so a fair number, had experienced four or more. Yeah, so this is a, a general population sample. So what I wanted to do in my research was look at a sample of people who had sexually offended and look how do they compare to this um, general population sample. So I've done this research with some North American colleagues, Joel Levinson and David Prescott. Some of the main findings for men in that general sample, about 38% had a a score of zero, so no adverse childhood experiences. In our sample, only 15.6% had experienced none. Mm-hmm. The majority had experienced some type of adverse childhood experience. But what was really striking for, for me, and I, really consistent with my observations, was that 45.7% had had four or more. Something that I'm trying to do as well to sort of advance this work is to look at the relationship between those early adverse experiences and then the difficulties or the problems that people present with and and that are the focus of our treatment programs. So things like um, self-regulation difficulties, difficulties managing your emotions, difficulties um, interpersonally, difficulties with intimacy, that kind of thing. In prison... I thought a lot about the impact of my offences on the victim, the victim's families, and my own family. I now want to move forward, and I don't want to repeat my past. At that time, I wasn't close to my family at all. I wanted closeness. I was abused as a child myself. I was in a broken relationship. I had a lack of boundaries. I ignored morals and neglected the impact of my actions. It was all about me. A lack of care. One moment my wife wanted sex, the next she didn't, but because I couldn't get it from her, I thought to myself, I'll get it somewhere else. I didn't trust adults. Children were safer. Mum died from a stroke when I was 14, and I looked after her from age 11. If she wouldn't have died, I wouldn't be here. I'm hoping to be in a relationship, to be paying off a house. I don't know, I'm getting older. I want to live a responsible life now. The backgrounds of these individuals is often varied and complex. Gwenda's research is heavily focused on preventing sexual offending and looking at the motivational factors behind it. According to her research, we should be less concerned about the devil that we don't know and focus more on the ones that we do. There are so many different pathways, if you like, into sexual offending. So it's not just a power play thing? What else is it? No, definitely not. One pathway that I've seen quite frequently is people who... Um, for whatever reason, they might have been extensively bullied in school and have really struggled establishing um, adult relationships and they've gravitated towards children to get their intimacy needs met because um, they've found children non-threatening. That sounds, that sounds disgusting, that sounds gross, and it absolutely is. We're not, we're not condoning any of that. What we're trying to do is understand what was the motivating factor behind this person going on and, and doing what he did. So in this kind of case, for some people, it is around wanting a sense of relatedness, a sense of connection, wanting intimacy, which is obviously something that many of us want to have in our lives. It's a natural kind of motivation as a, as a human being. So, so that they're kind of socially dysfunctional in yeah, a way? Yeah, so quite a few of the guys I've worked with developed quite strong social anxiety. Trays um, have felt like other adults judged them, that they're not liked, that they're inferior in some way. They don't feel that way around children. 
you know, sometimes sexual offending is part of a more kind of antisocial profile in general. Sometimes these people are, also have histories of all types of offences, violent offences, dishonesty offences, um, driving offences, and they have this kind of attitude of they don't care about other people and, and often we can link that back to experiences they've had when they're young of other people not, not caring, not caring them. for them. Yeah. For, for other people they develop sort of sexualised coping skills so for them their sexual offending can be in the context of feeling really overwhelmed and being entirely unprepared for those emotions. I've worked with people who when, when you sort of trace back what was happening around the time of their offending, they found themselves incredibly stressed, be it some kind of relationship breakdown, be it um, stress in the workplace, be it financial stress, and they've had problems being able to vocalise that, being able to talk to people about being able to problem solve, being able to manage that stress, and things have just spiralled out of control, and um, we know that sex is something that's pleasurable, and that um, for some of these guys, they've they've gone and, and used sex in a way to, to cope with that negative affect. I guess the thing that comes to my mind is, you know, f- for those offenders that are being released, even if they've been through treatment programs, you know, do you still want them wandering around a park where children might be around? And, you know, how safe are you? What are the temptations for someone who has sexually offended before and how possible is it to totally rehabilitate someone when someone's released I think it's really important that we apply decisions on a case by case kind of a basis like sure there are some people um, who have a history of repeat sexual offending who, who do continue to have a high risk and it's really important that those people are closely monitored but the majority of people that we work with in research aren't those people the majority of people that we work with in research have offended against people that are known to them people that they have established a, a relationship with over a long period of time they're not going to be a risk to a random child walking through a park that's not where the majority of sexual assaults happen. The majority of sexual assaults happen between a known victim and a known perpetrator and they happen in, in their homes. They, they happen amongst our families, people that we, that we know and people that we trust. My real kind of ambition and, and goal in all of this is to be starting to think about how can we stop people offending in the first place? How can we attract people into treatment, into services? How can we get them some support before they offend in the first place? Because if we just continue to concentrate on, on that minority of people that go through the system, we're not actually really addressing the problem of sexual abuse in this country. So would it make you feel different about the t- sorts of clothes you were wearing when you left the house, if you wanted to go for a walk, and what time you went for a walk in the morning? I mean, I'm not saying that it, that it wouldn't bother me at some level, but I just guess I would have to work to move beyond that. That story was from Sonia Sly, and she was speaking to Gwenda Willis from the psychology department at the University of Auckland. Additional characters in that story were performed by Tice Moritz, Kareem Dickey, Graham Moore and Mark Chesterman. Thanks for listening to this Our Changing World podcast. Check out our webpage for photos and web features. rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. Kia ora mai.